I feel I need to make an apology to Joel in advance that I have not learned this Bible passage off by heart. <laughs> I am absolutely amazed at your ability to uh, retain names. My only excuse is the age gap between you and me. <laughs> we continue our series in the book of Nehemiah, reading this morning from chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. The king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they'll provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governor of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the wealth of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem and after staying three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal wall and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through. 
So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as as yet I said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. And they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Aram heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What's this you're doing? You're rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as Brian reminded us, two weeks ago we started a new series in the book, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Why are we doing this? Well, one of a few reasons is that we find ourselves in the year 2020. And to have 2020 vision means that you have clarity. Uh, You can see with purpose. And so we're taking a look at the book of Nehemiah because Nehemiah is considered a leader who had vision, who had a sense of call upon, of God upon his life and was able to see that vision through uh, to action. And so a theme that will drive this series is truly spiritual work always involves action. In the book of Nehemiah, we see prayer and we see action. And the two always go hand in hand. Just a little bit of context for you. Uh, the, book of, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah come um, some 90 years or so after the, uh, the siege of Jerusalem, which took place in 586 BC under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, During his reign, uh, Jerusalem, the city, was sieged, the walls were burned down, the temple was destroyed, and all of the Israelites were carried off to exile in Babylon, where they would spend uh, many, many years. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, um, I guess, are about the restoration and the rebuilding of Jerusalem after that lengthy period of exile. So after 90 years of being in exile, we read about the first wave of return to Jerusalem. There were, in fact, three waves of Jewish people returning from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. And the first two we read about in the book of Ezra. We read about the rebuilding of the temple led by Zerubbabel and the rebuilding or the restoration of the law by the priest Ezra. 
We then arrive at the book of Nehemiah, and the two books are very much read to, are meant to be read together. In fact, in their original form, it's one book. But we're looking at the book of Nehemiah, which is about the restoration of the walls of Jerusalem. And in chapter one that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, we, there are three key elements. Nehemiah receives, Nehemiah, who is a cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes. The role of cupbearer was to taste the wine and the food of the king and ensure that it wasn't poisoned. It was actually a role of great influence because of the proximity that the cupbearer had to the king. And in chapter 1, we learn about Nehemiah receiving news from his brother Hanani that the Jerusalem was in total disgrace, um, that the walls had broken down and that the gates were burnt with fire. And the reason that this was such distressing news to Nehemiah, back in a day where they didn't have any form of communication that we do, they wouldn't have known what was going in a distant and foreign land. This distressing news for him was so distressing because there'd already been two waves of Israelites returning to Jerusalem to help bring about restoration and renewal. But even after that long period of time had passed and the temple had been re-established and the law had been re-established, the people were still in great distress and the walls were still burnt down. And so Nehemiah begins by mourning. This breaks his heart. He loves his home nation, his hometown, which he has actually never been to. But he loves his people and he loves the place of his ancestors. And he mourns. And after his time of fasting and mourning, he prays. In fact, the two very much go hand hand in hand. And it's interesting, when we look at Nehemiah chapter 1, there's a couple of things to take note of that we would normally, I'm sure, in our regular reading of the Scriptures, overlook. We see in verse 1 that the author, presumably Nehemiah, and this is largely a, a journalistic account, a memoir, if you will, of his experience of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, he lets us know what month it is. Now, this is a Jewish month, the month of Kislev. Um, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel, which is like a palace of Susa. Susa is in Persia. So he gives us the geography and the time of year when he received this news. And then in verse 11, we read at the end there, give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. Now, the cupbearer would be literally in the presence of the king daily. I assume that the king drank wine every day and ate food every day. And so Nehemiah would be with the king every day. And so in this prayer, there's a sense that today, Lord, I'm going to ask the king, grant me success in his presence. However, in chapter 2, in verse 1, we read in the month of Nisan. Um, Now, Kislev, according to our calendar, is around November, December. And Nisan is sort of March, April. So we wouldn't appreciate that three, four, possibly five months have passed in between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Why is this important? Because in verse 11 of chapter 1, Nehemiah wants to talk to the king today. But there was actually a period of waiting. (laughs) There was a period of time where God had obviously said to me and Nehemiah, not yet. 
the time is not right. Waiting time in God's economy is not wasted time. And how often do you and I want to act on things today? (laughs) God says, wait. Now, in the scheme of things, what's four to five months? For some of us here this morning, God may have been saying wait for years, decades. But the message this morning, and the message always, when we sing of God's faithfulness, is a message of trust. Now, during this time of waiting, something very important was happening for Nehemiah. God was birthing within him. God was placing within him a vision, a picture of a preferred future. So that when the time was right, when Nehemiah had the opportunity and the moment to speak to the king about what had saddened his heart, Nehemiah had plans, thoughtful plans, that he could then present to the king in an intelligent fashion that made sense to the king and therefore the king blessed those plans. The world is a much greater place for all of the different visions that people have had and worked towards. There are so many examples of visionary people, both grand and everyday, but I think of someone like Henry Ford, who had a vision to make cars accessible to the everyday person, including the factory workers who made them, or William Wilberforce, who had a vision to end British slavery, or Martin Luther King, who had a vision for racial equality, Or Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who had a vision to reduce suffering and poverty. Steve Jobs imagined the iPod and the iPhone well before the world became addicted to these devices. There are so many things that have happened in our world today that actually began with a vision in somebody's heart and mind. And it's not just on a grand scale either. You know, for anyone here who's tried, for example, to lose weight, that requires a vision. It requires an image or a picture of what life will look and feel like on the other side of what that will mean. And you set out with that vision. And now if that vision is going to come to fruition, it's going to require some action. We're going to talk about that, but it begins with a vision. You might have a vision to make a particular career change or enter into a particular vocation that will require a course of study. You have a vision of what you want to do, and there are some things that need to happen in order to help you arrive at that destination. Having a vision gives a picture of a preferred future, but where does the vision come from? Well, this morning we're considering God-given visions and the God-given vision that Nehemiah had. And often visions will arrive, or derive, sorry, out of a sense of things as they currently are now are not good enough. There is a dissatisfaction with the present. And when it comes to Nehemiah and his state of mourning, it is evident for him that things were not as they should be. A vision is a dissatisfaction with what is, coupled with a clear grasp, of what could be, 
a dissatisfaction with what is coupled with a clear grasp or a picture of what could be. Nehemiah had both. Dissatisfaction over the state of the broken Jewish walls and burnt down gates and a vision for change to rebuild the wall. Vision is birthed from discontentedness. All willing change comes from dissatisfaction initially, from a sense of things not being as they should be. And we've all experienced this in a variety of ways. Maybe we've been in a job for many years where we feel undervalued and overworked and underpaid and we're dissatisfied and we have a picture or a vision of an alternate future, maybe in a place of employment where we'll be valued and honoured and given um, a pay that is honouring to the work that we do. I think of our son Andrew, who for a very long time experienced constant tummy pains and gut pain, and we were able to change him after a long time to a gluten-free diet, and that changed his feeling. So there was that dissatisfaction, and the vision was to remove that feeling of illness, and a change in diet helped bring that about. I think about the endless list of jobs that we all have going on around our houses. And ultimately, it's those things that we become most dissatisfied with (laughs) to the point where we have to do something about them. When faced with dissatisfying or unacceptable circumstances, either personally or on a larger scale, we can do one of two things. We can become gradually complacent and apathetic and just accept that what is will be what is. Or we can take action. We can course a different path that will result in a different and positive outcome. As we reflect this morning on Nehemiah and the dissatisfaction that he felt with the state of Jerusalem, what about you? What kind of broken down walls do you see in our community? What sort of burnt down gates can you see in your local neighbourhood that give you a feeling of dissatisfaction, that things are not as they could or should be? In what part of your own attitudes and behaviours and choices are you accepting the unacceptable? There's got to come a point where we say enough is enough. Just like Jesus, when he was in the temple, turned over the tables because he was not going to accept what was unacceptable to God. It's at this point of high dissatisfaction that the tipping point for change can come. For example, the miracles of Jesus were a reversal of how God intended things to be. Jesus was driven by a vision of the kingdom of God where there is no illness, where there is no suffering or poverty or starvation or injustice or death. And so much of what he did, the miracles of Jesus, derived from a place of dissatisfaction that things were not as they were intended to be. And he brought restoration and renewal and returned things to how God had intended them to be for a time. 
His dissatisfaction with brokenness and darkness fueled him to bring healing and light. Jesus had a passion for the kingdom of God to see the kingdom come in people's lives. Nehemiah had a passion to see the broken wall of Jerusalem rebuilt. True vision is born or fueled out of a sense of passion and compassion. Otherwise, it will simply remain a fuzzy dream. In the case of Nehemiah's passion, it was clearly a passion that God had placed in his heart. Chapter 2, verse 12. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. Chapter 7, verse 5. So God put into my heart. You see, Nehemiah is clear. It's not his idea alone. It is God's idea. It's his doing. Now, we might be tempted to think, well, that's great for leaders like Nehemiah in the Bible or for church pastors who God gives them a vision for the church. But I don't think that's why Nehemiah puts this story here for the singular leader. God puts passion into all of our hearts because God is love and God loves with a passionate love. And when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, this God who is love lives within us, which means that there is passion within each one of us. Romans 12, 11, speaking to all believers, not just your Nehemiahs, but all, leaders, all people says, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Sounds a lot like passion to me. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervour. Whatever your particular gifting is, we are encouraged to fan it into flame. God puts a passion into every one of our hearts. So let me ask you, what is your passion? You may not have a grand vision or a grand passion. Perhaps you do. Perhaps you have a grand vision to see the world evangelised, to see the lost saved, the the church, the capital C church, the universal church, unified. Perhaps you have a passion or a vision to see the environment stewarded well or to welcome and integrate refugees, to advocate for Indigenous peoples, to see the homeless sheltered, to see poverty eradicated. Perhaps your passion or vision is more localised, to raise a godly family, to foster a healthy and happy marriage, to grow in Christ-like character, to bless and serve your church family, to achieve financial freedom so that you can be more generous with your time and resources to extend the kingdom of God. Perhaps you have a strong affiliation for a particular group of people, be it children, youth, seniors, men, women, people with special needs, whenever there is an opportunity to serve these groups of people, your ears prick up and you're like, where do I sign? I'm in. Maybe in the church, it's pastoral care, 
property, discipleship, prayer, worship, mission, justice or evangelism. If you knew there was one thing that you could do and all the doors would open and all the resources would be made available to see that vision achieved, what would you have a go at? In Nehemiah 2, we see how Nehemiah moves from passion to vision to action. In a state of mourning over what is broken, God births within him a passion to be part of the solution. He has a vision to see the wall rebuilt. And as he waits on God's timing to approach the king, he devises a plan of what will be required to achieve the rebuild. He requires time. He requires protection. He requires letters. He requires resources. At what point are you at? Are you in that waiting time? That time where you wait and you learn and you gather ideas and start to plan? Can you identify your passion? Maybe you don't know what your particular passion is. Has God placed a vision in your heart of how you can bring about change? Do you have a plan of action that you're working on, working towards? What are the practical and tangible steps that need to happen today that will help move you closer to realising the vision God has given you? Our vision here at Erin Baptist is to grow Christ-centred disciples. And we have a selection of vision scenarios that relate to what we see a Christ-centred disciple is in how they love God and how they love others. And we believe that a church filled with Christ-centred disciples who love God and who love others will be a loving church. And that's at the heart of what we're on about here at Erina. Recently at our Leaders Retreat Day, I shared this picture, this image of a tree being watered with the idea and the encouragement to all of our different ministry or leaders that every single ministry that we do here in the life of this church ought to be watering the vision that God has given us, ought to be nurturing and sowing the seeds that will help people, individuals who either are part of this church or have some sense of connection with it, will be moving closer to knowing Christ and growing in Christ and becoming increasingly Christ-centred. For vision to be authentic... It starts with an idea in our minds that God places there. But if it's actually to move towards a reality, there needs to be actions that follow. A true vision fueled by passion, which comes from a place of dissatisfaction, will simply not accept the status quo. It won't accept things as they are. It will work actively towards change. It's not easy, though, which is why so many of us stay in the comfort zone. And it requires us to move from the known to the unknown, from the comfortable to the uncomfortable. And we see this happen for Nehemiah. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, Remember, we've had a period of four to five months. Nehemiah has been sad, but he hasn't been sad in the presence of the king before. 
Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? This was a very uncomfortable place for Nehemiah. He took a risk. His role as cupbearer saw him in the presence of the king daily. And before making his request, up until this moment, he had been sad in heart. But this was the first time he revealed those emotions physically, tangibly, to the king. And to be sad in front of the king was not a good idea. It brought a negative spirit into the palace. And it could, in fact, risk a person's life. Nehemiah himself records that he was very much afraid to show his emotions and his grief over the state of Jerusalem. However, his vision for action overwhelmed him to the point of leaving the place of comfort and moving into the unknown. With a prayer to heaven, Nehemiah expressed his discomfort in his heart. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favour in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so I can rebuild it. One of the things that the book of Nehemiah models to us is a variety of prayers. In chapter 1, we see days of mourning and fasting before God. In chapter 2, we see the arrow prayer. Help! In this moment, we see how Nehemiah seeks both divine help from God and human assistance from the king. And again, I think this models to us so beautifully how prayer and action go hand in hand. He prays to God for help and success, but he also seeks the king for permission to leave his current post as cupbearer and go to Jerusalem to rebuild the broken wall. Now, Nehemiah can't know for sure how this work is going to go. He doesn't know how cooperative and helpful the Jerusalemites or the Israelites will be when he gets there. He doesn't know how much sway the opposing forces will have. And if completed, he doesn't know if the walls will be reburnt and redestroyed. These are all legitimate questions to ask, but they did not stop him from pursuing what God had placed into his heart. This is an important point. When we choose to step out of the comfortable into the uncomfortable or out of the known into the unknown, there will always be questions. Is God really with us? Is this going to work? What if I fail? Where will it all lead? Life with God is full of questions and full of uncertainties. The Bible, in fact, is full of stories of people learning to trust an unknown future to a known God. When Jesus called his disciples, he essentially said, come follow me. 
He didn't say, come follow me to this place and we'll do this thing for this amount of time and then we'll go here and then we'll go there and this is how life is going to look for you. No, he said, come follow me. In fact, Jesus is the destination. There is no known apart from him. God is the God of the unknown. In fact, his capacity is experienced in the unknown. Think of Abraham. I think of all of these different leaders who had to trust God and walk in the ways and the vision that he had called them into. What is your unknown right now? Oftentimes, the place where we can experience God the most is in the unknown. Your place of unknown right now is quite potentially the place of growth for you and for me. And how often are we, like children, at the edge of a swimming pool? We want to dive in but there's the questions and the fear and the uncertainty. And we either retrieve and go back to where it's safe or we just stand. And the questions and the uncertainty and the unknown cripples us. But there will eventually come that point, won't there? Where God says, go for it. The walk of faith, the Christian life, is a walk of faith. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. The journey from passion to vision to action requires moving from the comfortable to the uncomfortable, which in turn requires trust and faith in the one whom we follow and serve. The vision God gave Nehemiah to rebuild the wall was not something he could achieve on his own. There's another really interesting thing that happens in chapter 2. There's a movement. And we see in verse 5 when Nehemiah approaches the king, he says, Let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Notice the change of language in verse 17. Same chapter. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. If we are to accomplish the vision God places within us, we have to make the move from individualism to cooperative action. We need each other. You know, even if we have a very individual goal or vision. We still need the encouragement and the input of other people into our lives. Clearly, any God-given vision for a church community requires everyone to play their role and their part. We need each other. And we need each other because God's into building not only churches, but he's into building people. And as the Israelites rebuilt the wall, in a sense they themselves were being rebuilt. With every stone or brick that was laid, 
Hope was rising. Unity was forming. Strength was growing. And the same thing happens in the church. When we work together, something happens and we grow and we are built together. And you're going to hear about that next week from Pastor Jack in chapter 3. Very rarely will progress come without opposition. And the voice of ridicule and mocking is present in the text. The critical voices of Sanballat, Tobiah and Geshem, which oppose the rebuilding, aren't going away. And we'll come back to them in chapter 4. Right now, let's conclude. If you want to move from passion to vision to action, here are three things, six things kind of. Stop and pray. Stop and pray. As we see in Nehemiah, ask God, ask God, I want to serve you, Lord. What is the passion that you have placed into my heart? Humble yourself before God, submit to him. Repent of those things that you've become apathetic towards. Stop and pray. Maybe that's where you're at. Stop and pray and seek God for the vision that he has for you, the passion that he's placed in your heart. Two, prepare and ask. Nehemiah, during his period of waiting, he prays, but he also plans. When he does eventually speak to the king, he has a plan of what he needs and what he wants to do and how long it will take. If you're in this stage, do your research, train, study, read, search out people, times, opportunities and other networks and resources that will help towards the vision that God's given. And then finally, step out and go. When the time comes and the opportunity presents itself to head into the unknown, go for it. And that, my friends, is Nehemiah chapter 2. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to open your word to the book of Nehemiah. We thank you for his example, an example of prayer and waiting on you, preparing and then stepping forward and going out with the vision and the passion that you gave him. Lord, just as you placed a vision in Nehemiah's heart, so too you have given this church a vision, but also you have given each one of us as individuals a passion and a vision for change that we can bring to this broken world. Father, I pray that you would meet each person here this morning where they are at and be the great I am for them. Thank you, God, that you meet us in our need and you are entirely sufficient to provide us everything we need for all that you are calling us into and for. We pray this, Lord, not for our own glory, but for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.